0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's
1: S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
2: Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, quick word from a sponsor making today's show possible. It's HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. I have tried it. I have eaten a HelloFresh dinner, and uh, hello, it was pretty fresh. Go to hellofresh.com, use the promo code Longform, and you're going to save thirty-five bucks off your first week of deliveries. That's hellofresh.com. Use the promo code Longform. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast.
1: I'm Evan Ratliff here with one co-host, Max, remotely connected to another, Aaron Lammer. Hi, guys. Aaron, I literally don't know where you are located right now.
2: I'm in my hometown, lovely Berkeley, California.
1: Ah. If people listen to the shows in order, they'll really get like a mini travelogue of your experiences. That's right. As they
2: go. Literally, my mom is vacuuming in the background. (laughs) Aaron, tell your mom to stop vacuuming. Who's on the show this week?
1: All right, this week I talked to Doreen St. Felix. Who uh, most recently you will have seen her work at MTV.com, but she's also written for all types of other places: Pitchfork, for The New Yorker, a mix of really, really great criticism, essays, reported stuff. She's a big talent, and uh, she was fun to talk to.
2: We've been criticized for a lack of critics on our show, and uh, today we respond. I kind of wasn't kidding before. Tell your mom to turn off the vacuum. We're going to be done with this. I don't don't know where I don't know where it's coming from. (laughs) I'm sorry Mom, get off the phone off was, the phone. <laughs> if I look for the vacuuming That's going to bring me closer to the vacuum Alright, let's just get out of here If you were going to tell your mom After you tell her just to turn off the vacuum If you were going to tell her to use an email newsletter provider Who would you recommend? MailChimp could make it happen <laughs> Over 8 million businesses use MailChimp Longform does Atavis does I don't know for sure But I bet every place that Doreen St. Felix has worked used MailChimp Here's Evan with Doreen St. Felix. Doreen, welcome to the
1: podcast.
0: Thank you. I'm happy to be here.
1: Thank you for coming. I have been reading a lot of your work Mm -hmm. uh, as much as I could get my hands on, although I I didn't get back to the college stuff.
0: That's that's actually pretty good. (laughs) That you didn't get back to that stuff.
1: (laughs) But I do, I kind of want to start at how you got into this business. First of all, you went to Brown. I know that. But you've said somewhere that you wanted to get into like narrative nonfiction writing kind of stuff when you were in college, but couldn't or didn't feel like the type of writing you wanted to do was being done there or that they wanted you to do it.
0: Uh So I was one of those kids who came to the Ivy League By chance, I had been kind of placed in a track when I was younger. Uh That would obviously set me up to go to a school like Brown. And while you're prepared academically, you really aren't prepared culturally for just how elite it is and like both the positive and negative meanings of that word. And so.
1: And you grew up here in Brooklyn?
0: Yeah. I've always lived in Brooklyn except for when I was in school in Providence. So the writing program at Brown is a subset of the English concentration. So you have to major in English and then you take like five or six extra classes and then you get like a nonfiction certificate. So it's not even journalism at Brown. It's nonfiction.
1: It's creative nonfiction. It's all encompassing. Yeah. I
0: mean, but that it goes to show you how stush it is over there. Um, And all that's to say, I hadn't read a lot of the magazines, a lot of the essays, a lot of the books that my peers just came into school already knowing, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know who Joan Didion was. I had never read The New Yorker. I'd like never seen a copy of it before, which I think tells you a lot about what it's like to be a person from New York who isn't in that space, right? you know, and plainly, I couldn't speak the language and I couldn't write the way that a lot of other kids wrote. There was this class, it was called The Public Intellectual. It was literally called that. And it was very coveted, of course, because that's where you learned how to expound on something that happened in culture. That's where you learned how to be a critic. And it was really difficult to get into. So the process was that on the first day of classes, each semester, a bunch of people would come into this room. And we'd get topics that we'd have to write an essay on in, you know, 50 minutes or whatever. You
1: just said you don't know what it is in advance. You just come in. You have no idea.
0: And I came in every semester for four semesters and I never got into it. Ever. And each time (laughs) I came back, I was like, all right, you know, like I've been reading The Atlantic. I know exactly what you want me to do. And it never worked out for me. And in general, I did fine in my classes because I was always a fine student, but I never felt that there was a real clicking happening between myself and the idea that I was being... Fed of what a critic looks like and also what a critic tends to write about.
1: In the not getting into that class, did you get some sense of like what what it is that they wanted? No, like, what did it, they was think really, it was really
0: it was really mystifying for me. And now I can look back at the experience and see I was interested in writing about capital R race. Mm-hmm. And that's something that's very troubled, I think, in both criticism and then also race theory, which is to say, I wanted to write about things that were happening in black culture, but I didn't want to do it in academic language. Uh You know, I didn't want to get a PhD. I didn't want to be in those sorts of classes. But there was a real friction between the school and in general academia's understanding of what things constitute culture and what things constitute systems that have to be studied. Mm -hmm. And I think blackness and all that it encompasses ends up getting looped into the latter, which is to say that if you want to write critically about something that's happening like in hip hop or rap or even pop music, you're more likely to do that in an African-American like studies class than you are to do that in a writing class.
1: Uh-huh. Or a class called the public intellectual.
0: Or a class called the public intellectual. This is just a really roundabout way of me saying that I didn't really do that well at school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So where did that leave you coming out in terms of what you wanted to do or what you felt like, okay, I still want to do this?
0: Shelfed it, tabled it. I graduated without a job, without a plan. I lived in Brooklyn, though, so it kind of seemed like I had a situation going on because I was moving back to New York like everybody else. Um... Freelancing. i was freelancing. (laughs) Oh, God. I was unemployed and depressed and needed to talk to people. (laughs) And so I started using Twitter. I started realizing that people use it to live tweet television shows and that people were actually practicing criticism in this very discreet way. And I found myself just falling into that pattern with a lot of other, a lot of other women in particular, and then also a lot of other black and brown women. And there were editors and there were writers who were reaching out to me who were kind of like, everything that you're doing on this timeline, you should just be doing in a published piece. And that's when I sort of realized, retrospectively looking back at my time in college, the problem was I just wasn't in the right critical space, right? I wasn't in the space where people cared about a show like Empire. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I found those people, and it took me a minute to – gather the confidence because I'm an extreme perfectionist. And so I never wanted to publish anything that felt less than, you know, perfect in a lot of ways, which is a bad thing as a writer, especially when you're really young.
1: Well, and also when you're freelancing and trying to hustle up enough pieces to make a living.
0: Exactly. You don't have that luxury. But that's how it started. It was just women reaching out to me.
1: That you had sort of connected with a little bit. Yeah. And they said, hey, you should take this somewhere.
0: And... Then I started at Lenny.
1: And by Lenny, most people will know, but some might not. Lenny Letter, Mm -hmm. which is Lena Dunham's. Is it still considered a newsletter? It's like a publication, basically.
0: I think they should start calling themselves a publication. There's so many different arms of it. You know, there's the website. There's the newsletter itself. But yeah, still fundamentally a newsletter.
1: So you got this job at Lenny. Uh, What did that entail? Like, were you assigning things? That's like a new media thing that's just like arisen out of nothing uh, around a particular person. And like, what is it like to be like pulled into that?
0: Yeah, that was I didn't realize how unique of an entry experience into media I had by starting with Lenny, because there wasn't really a newsletter like it that existed and still not to this day one that is able to really be successful in that model because it's such an unusual model and lenny was interesting because i was learning about feminist media which is a whole other genre (laughs) of media different from you know your like regular website and Uh there are certain mores and there are certain ethics to it that don't exist in other spaces and
1: Like, what can you say specifically, like, an example of that?
0: Yeah. So, I think the personal essay, for example, Mm -hmm. frowned upon in most like traditional journalistic spaces, right? Because there's not, people argue, there's not a sense of like reporting that you're doing. It's solipsistic. It's not journalism, capital J. But feminist media hinges on the personal essay Mm. because that is a genre of writing that is available to women, partly because of how they've, you know, the pink ghetto online, but also just because women write memoir and they have always done that. And that was the main thing that we were really working with when we started with Lenny, it was personal essays. And what really made a splash were the essays that we got from celebrities, mm-hmm. um, like the Jennifer Lawrence essay, which came out, I think, in the first couple of months in the, in the newsletter.
1: And did you, were you like editing those?
0: No, I wasn't involved in editing those. Uh I was editor at large, so Uh I was, they gave me so much space to kind of just like be a fuck up. (laughs) Thanks, Jessica and Maya. (laughs) But no, I was just, I was figuring out how I could be a critic in a feminist endeavor like Mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are certain things, I'm not going to be able to write a take on Frank Ocean in that newsletter, it doesn't really make sense, right? Because we're not doing like music criticism in that way. Mm -hmm. But you can still, you can elevate the idea of what women's writing can do. I was able to write about a lot of obscure or left of mainstream things within Lenny that ended up being part of the way that that voice continues. I love the one about the
1: quadruplets.
0: (laughs) Oh, my God. That story is so
1: Where did you find nuts. that story? Did you know about that? Already? I knew about that story
0: across? because yeah. I was obsessed with advertising in uh, the 50s. Right. And so I remember seeing all of these posters of these identical four black people. And those advertisements weren't even photos necessarily. A lot of them were just like graphics. Uh-huh. And so I didn't know that they were real. Until I Googled them and I found that they were actually four identical black girls who were born in America and totally taken advantage of. By, by this weird doctor. By this weird doctor who I guess he saw the how much value they would have. And he was the one who basically signed all of the like advertising um, contracts with companies. And so three of them died of cancer. The family was poor. And meanwhile, they were being used to sell like baby formula in the 50s they were selling everything yeah but they never really made any money on their own um
1: kind of a classic story
0: yeah it's very tragic but lenny was really the only place i could actually do a story like that um so i really appreciate having started off in a space that had its bias out so clear you know like we are only about uplifting women and we'll be critical of them when we need to but it's never going to be snarky so that taught me it actually taught me different ways to be a good writer because i had Uh certain restrictions on me yeah so yeah and after that it was just like oh I am a public intellectual. (laughs) Put (laughs) in your bio. Not only did I feel vindicated, but I also felt like I had the tools to continue because then I started to realize that writing wasn't just this abstracted, deeply hermetic labor that I had been taught that it was in college. It was actually a practice of making contacts, building connections, networking, knowing which editors you like, knowing which editors you can't work with. Um, And that's when I really started to cultivate that network for myself.
2: Hey, it's Max. Quick word from our sponsors. First up, Texture. And if you're listening to this podcast, then Texture is relevant to your interest. It's a magazine app. They've got hundreds of the world's most popular magazines and you can read them anytime, anywhere using your smartphone or tablet. These are not just magazines that are freely available online. They've got tons of magazines that require a subscription and you can get them all in one place. Hundreds of your favorite magazines, including the back issues, all in one place. Texture makes it easy to find articles that you care about. You can read your favorite magazines, magazines you wouldn't normally read, and they have an editorial team that recommends content for you. Plus, they've got these like uh, personalized collections based on your interests. You will always have something to read. And if you go to texture.com slash longform, that's texture.com slash longform, you can start a free trial right now. Immediate entry to all of the top magazines, including those back issues and bonus video content. Start binge reading for free right now. Go to texture.com slash longform. Thanks so much to them for sponsoring the show. Also sponsoring the show this week, Harry's. And I've got a little story to tell you about Harry's. For most of 2016, I had a huge beard, like a like a, a gross, large beard. And uh, I took it off using a Harry's razor. Couldn't have been easier. Got a close shave. It was smooth. It was a comfortable glide. And it also didn't break the bank. You know how, like, razors just cost too much? They're one of those things you go to the store and you're just like, that shouldn't cost that much. But it does. It does. Harry's blades are just $2 per blade. That's like half of what you're going to pay at the drugstore, and they do that because they own this factory in Germany, and they make all the blades there, and they can produce these high-quality razors themselves and sell them online for half the price. They are so confident in the quality of these blades that they'll send you their popular free trial set, which comes with a razor, a five-blade cartridge, and shaving gel. It's totally free when you sign up for the shave plan. All you have to do is pay shipping plus... There is a special offer for listeners of this show. Enter the code LONGFORM at checkout, and you will get a post-shave balm. I used it after I shaved off my beard. It made me feel great. It'll be added to your order for free. So go to harrys.com right now and enter the code LONGFORM at checkout to claim that free trial set and post-shave balm. That's harrys.com, and the code is LONGFORM. Okay, let's get back to Evan and Doreen.
1: How did you, like looking at the more recent pieces you've been doing for Mm MTV.com, how do you conceptualize those pieces? Do you think of it as just as criticism or as some other form? Like, is it in a tradition of music criticism or Mm -hmm. do you feel that it falls into some other genre?
0: Well, I definitely began doing music criticism in part because it was the most welcoming, critical space online for women who are black. Uh Uh-huh. I actually really wanted to be a science writer when I first started off but like there's, there's no space for black female journalists in the science writing world. So,
1: and uh, did you feel uh, did you feel that actively? Like did you feel Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
0: It was just kind of like you don't have this pedigree that's necessary to be in that space. Um and so I am a forager, so I found a different space where it, my skills actually were wanted because they were really rare and it was scarce that these editors were able to find black women who could both write in a way that's legible to a community that's very important to them, but then also provide this opinion that only they can have because of just prior knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so that's really why I started with music. And it's sometimes depressing that the way the idea of the think piece is kind of weaponized in a lot of conversation as being like a lower form of writing. Mm -hmm. It ends up making me feel uncomfortable because I think a lot of the pieces that I write could be classified as think pieces and I wouldn't have a problem with that. But in terms of what they are as criticism, to me, I was obsessed with reading people like Hilton Knowles and Greg Tate in the 80s and 90s. The Village Voice, and I'm really interested in honing that sort of critical eye towards what people would call black cultural products. So I really try to look at something. For instance, I wrote this piece about carefreeness, Mm -hmm. which has become something like a meme online, I think, for the past couple of years. A lot of younger Generation Z as they're called, um, black users on the internet are invoking this idea of of carefreeness to trouble um, conceptions of gender, race, class, all these things. And obviously there have been people who have said, oh, I don't actually feel like a carefree person, but I hadn't felt that there had been a methodical analysis of A, how this thing came to be. And then all the ways that it's inflected in rappers. That was the subject that I chose to write about in this piece. But you could have, like, picked any kind of black person in public.
1: And there's a lot. Of, there's also history in that piece. There's exactly. There's sort of almost a little bit of scholarship. Like, I found that in some of your other pieces as well.
0: Yeah. I studied African-American race theory and diaspora race theory. I studied all that stuff. I'm, like, a really big, fat nerd. <laughs> and... That history, that kind of academia is so ghettoized. It's not something that is fluent for even people who study black literary phenomena or anything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I'm just lucky that I found places that are hospitable to me being like very... Um, extract in terms of the references that I pull up in these essays, but it's worked out that way. And I do feel like it's connecting to people.
1: And it's interesting to hear that because you're you're clearly so steeped in the layers of the past that go into this criticism, which is something that like would be a standard thing for like a white critic writing about mm-hmm. rock and roll. It's like to write for about sure. the 60s and the politics that went into it, but most of them are not going to be steeped in that for hip hop or for that type of sort of like online meme.
0: And then you end up with this narrative that Young Thug is radical or Young Thug is revolutionary and there's never been anybody like Young Thug, which is absolutely ridiculous. There have been so many instances of virulently straight black men wearing dresses or perming their hair. People like Little Richard, like it's always been happening. And... Part of the problem is when you don't have an archive which a lot of black culture doesn't have, hasn't been documented in a very certain way, then there's no real impetus for contemporary critics to search for that archive, right? Mm-hmm. Either it's not available or they can't actually read it or they can't assert it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that it takes anything away from somebody like Young Thug to say, "You know what, actually. Outcast came before him and he was influenced by them. And before Outcast, there was somebody, you know, there's like James Brown and that's who they were emulating. I don't think it does a disservice. If anything, it creates this lineage that shows Black culture isn't just like a smattering of individuals reacting to whiteness, right? There's a real interconnectivity and signaling happening between people across time. Across history, across gender, across the country too. Like regionalism is something that I really try to think about. You know, all the different ways there are to be black.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And you've you mentioned that you've been lucky to have editors who are who are comfortable with that. Yeah. And what what kind of mandate do you get? I mean, let's take MTV.com for example. Like, mm-hmm. I read some of these pieces. Like, I mean, you reviewed Solange Knoll's new album, Mm -hmm. and that type of writing could appear in M Plus One. It could appear in sort of intellectual spaces. A lot of people might not think of MTV as that. Um, They would not be up to date with sort of like all the writers they've collected at MTV. Yeah, the relaunch. Yeah, but... I do wonder what what kind of mandate, if any, are you given with that kind of piece? Like that you're you're supposed to produce X, Y, or Z. Like in the end, is it supposed to be something that recommends this piece of culture or art or not? Or are they just sort of like, go do your thing?
0: That's such an interesting question. I've always, I mean, in the couple of years that I've been working professionally, I've always been on projects at the beginning, which is the greatest place to be, because You're still forming your identity. You're still figuring out voice. And because MTV News is in this burgeoning phase in terms of reestablishing their critical voice, there has been a lot of space for me to play. There has been a lot of space for me to write things that sound like they belong in a different kind of magazine because Mm -hmm. MTV News isn't any kind of magazine yet. And I really appreciate that because, honestly... It's pushed me to become a more consistent writer. And part of the reason why I even felt like I needed to write about Solange's album was because I wrote about Frank Ocean's album. And I was like, okay, I'm finally in a place logistically and money wise where I can sustain doing that kind of criticism like, you know, on a two or three week clip. So I should probably just keep doing that because it's really easy for me to get stuck in drafts and never publish, which (laughs) I'm sure so many other people (laughs) can commiserate with me on that.
1: Do you feel the need to, if something big comes out, that you need to address it? Like, I want to have a voice in that because everybody's talking about it? Or do you find that you want to stay away from things that everyone's talking about and want to kind of go a different direction? Mm
0: Mm-hmm. I often feel the compulsion to talk about big culture things, but maybe like a week after they happen, which is to say, Lemonade, for example, we all watched the HBO special on Saturday and it was surprising, I think, to many people what Beyonce did with that project. It was very different from the previous visual project that she had done with Beyonce self-titled and that was a moment where I could have easily just responded to it the next day in a very reactionary like oh I'm a black woman I'm clearly the intended audience to it let me just riff off an essay but I think for me sometimes even if I do end up responding to things that I guess people would expect me to respond to (laughs) if I take a few extra days I'm able to remove any personal connection that I feel to it that would end up obscuring what the actual art is doing, which I think is really difficult for a lot of black people because the idea is you should feel moved by some kind of art mm-hmm. because it's so hard for black people to do it in the first place. So if something actually like gets through the ringer and is has surfaced and has gained some kind of critical acclaim, your reaction should always be to continue to elevate it. But I'm not interested in that.
1: the impulse to lift things up uh, and the necessity of lift lifting things up in certain certain situations, it feels like that, just from someone who's been reading a lot about it in the Birth of a Nation mm-hmm. situation is like that's right at the heart of how the angst over like how to treat that oh, uh, absolutely. that
0: film I mean, putting Nate Parker. Aside, let's talk about the birth of a nation. All right. I haven't seen it. I ha- <laughs> I've seen it. I have
1: a small child, so I haven't seen a movie and I've seen like one oh, movie in a year. Man. But... Listen,
0: if you're gonna see one movie, don't make it the birth of a nation. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kids. But
1: um That's 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 a tight piece <laughs> of criticism right there. That's like <laughs> the simple uh, thumbs up, thumbs down.
0: Um I did see it because I had been very vocal about the issues in nate parker's personal life so Mm -hmm. i was like as a critic it's probably my responsibility to go see this movie Mm -hmm. and i laughed many times throughout it because it was so thick with a desire to make a capital b capital r black radical narrative that it just was fabricating history out of thin air so basically, if you know about Nat Turner, and it's very difficult to know about Nat Turner because most of his testimony was extracted under duress, mm-hmm. you know, when he was caught by these white people mm-hmm. um, after having been in hiding for a couple of months after the rebellion. Um, but from what we do know, this is like a very, very complicated man. Obviously, slavery is like the number one moral infraction that this world has ever seen. But still, you have to wonder what is a man going through that he can go out and kill women and children in their sleep? And this is what Nat Turner did. It's a complex It's very it's complex. complex. Question. And to me, he was always, I'd always seen him as a zealot, a religious figure, a hysterical figure, somebody who acted out of extreme... Um, narcissism, narcissism that was so strong that he actually kind of thought that he was God in a way. And when you see the movie, that's all flattened out. Basically, the rebellion happens because he is exacting revenge over a series of rapes that happen at his plantation. And so it's it ends up getting... It's all righteous. Yeah, it's all righteous. Nobody's going to be like, you know what? That guy who avenged his wife's rape is a bad man, you know? There's no way that you would have that response to it. And I hate so much that we would ever erase or soften real history in order to make some political ends in 2016. Mm-hmm. You know, that it just feels like, damn, like we don't even have an archive in the first place. Now that we have the ability to make artifacts to reflect it, we're just making propaganda.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, So, yeah, that's something that that experience really reminded me that as a critic, I have a responsibility to not ever make propaganda, even if that propaganda is like black people are amazing. It's still not true. It's still not real. It's still not telling our story.
1: What's your general view on this this sort of cultural time? Because it it seems like such a strange time because politically there's this like very explicit more explicit than it's been it feels to me since like the 60s like racial aspect of like one presidential candidate's approach to the world Mm -hmm. and popularity and so there's like that mix but there's also like and then there's everything that's happening with black lives matter and that political movement and then there's in culture there's all of these shows like atlanta like atlanta or moonlight now i'm saying these things like total ignorance (laughs) because i haven't seen them Uh, although they're all like on my list to see. But it just feels like, and I've seen people talking about these things as if there's like just a lot happening right now by black artists Mm -hmm. and that are talking to each other in different ways. You tweeted about this in the last couple of days. And I'm wondering what you sort of make of that. Is there a reason why these things are all happening at the same time? Are they connected in your mind?
0: I will preface this by saying that I grew up very superstitious. Mm. So to me, it really feels like a reckoning. It feels like there's some something bubbling under the surface. I can't discount that what is going on in, you know, the close of Obama's era, the fact that we have this figure like Trump rising. I can't say that that's disconnected from, obviously, Black Lives Matter. But then even in the space of art people like Donald Glover creating these completely black worlds within America. A lot of the movies and shows that you mentioned, like Atlanta, Queen Sugar is another one by Ava DuVernay, uh, Moonlight, Moonlight does not have any white people in it. And it feels that there are images of black utopias that are arising. And you can't, Even if you're not as superstitious as me, you can't (laughs) possibly think that that doesn't have to do with the decline, the final, like, to me, last gasp of white supremacy. It really does feel like we're approaching that. And that approach might be a thousand years, right? And if we come together in the way that we should, and by we, I do mean artists, we'll come out better for it on the other side. But that would take, I think... A way of speaking to each other, which is not really easy to do. I think the internet, if anything, like makes it seem like we're all speaking to each other, but I don't know if that's actually materially happening.
1: I'm curious, what kind of audience you feel like you're speaking to? Are you speaking to an audience when you're writing criticism, mm-hmm. uh, who you feel like are also really immersed in this culture, and thereby they will catch references there and immersed in the internet culture and other things or do you feel like you're in some way trying to capture someone who might not know uh, about these particular artists and like pull them in?
0: Mm-hmm. My sense of who my audience is is very over I think that my audience is exactly like me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> when I write a piece on Frank Ocean I'm like alright my audience is somebody who was vaguely obsessed with advertisements from the 50s, right? And so, and not in a Mad Men way, but like (laughs) the actual advertisements themselves. And Uh I was really interested in that kind of graphic um, writing and graphic pictures. So what ends up happening is that I, just for the interest and for the pleasure of a reader like myself, I try to give every detail about that era or whatever I'm talking about. So it's like in that Frank piece, you know, I'm really writing about cars. So I tried to write as much about them as I possibly could because not because I wanted to explain something to an imagined reader who didn't know what I was talking about, but because it's so pleasurable to look at something that you like from every kind of angle. And so in that way, my approach is very indulgent and it ends up, I think, encompassing people who may not be familiar with a lot of the references but if you <laughs> wax enough and if you riff hard enough they'll become familiar and
1: the interesting thing about the way you approach it is that it does contextualize it in a way that like I I had not listened to that Solange album like that's just not something that I mean I know it exists and like I know who she is but I wouldn't have listened to it mm-hmm. but I feel like reading that type of criticism, it makes me think like, oh, this is embedded in a context and this is important to listen to for this or that reason. And then I can listen to it as a sort of a more educated listener than I otherwise would be. Um, And that's, I guess that I was curious if that was a goal or if it's just like a random ignorant person is finding its way into this criticism (laughs) and uh, making something of it.
0: Oh my God, stop. (laughs) I think it's it's an unintended goal, but it ends up being reached because I'm not a, a classically trained music writer in a lot of ways. The tools that I have at my disposal are intertextual. You know, like I know a lot about, I can tell you a lot about like Carrie Mae Weems. I can tell you a lot about references that I see in these works that aren't musical. And so what ends up happening, I think, yeah, it's, just, it's an effect of what I am actually able to do. If I know that I can't accurately expound on the musical references in an album or even a song. I'm not going to do that, right? I'm not going to just, like, pull something out of thin air. Right. But it so happened to be that the artists that I'm interested in are also interested in other genres and are also interested in other media. And so, in my opinion, in order to really write the Solange essay, you do have to talk about things that aren't music. You know, she did, like, an interview right after the album came out and was talking about how she'd been listening. She'd been reading Claudia Rankine Mm -hmm. citizen. And that was one of the major influences in the work. And so when an artist in some way, one way or another makes it clear to you that they're not just listening to other music, that they're reading, that they're looking at pictures, you know, that they're doing hair, whatever, it's your duty to kind of like chase those influences, which reminds me the director of moonlight actually published a letter yesterday and, Within it, he talks about all of his influences and Frank Ocean was one of them, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and as soon as I read that that was a reference for him, I just I replayed the film in my head and I was like, oh, my God, of course, like this movie in a way couldn't have happened without Frank Ocean. He is an antecedent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know if I was working in a different arena or in a different beat if that would be at my disposal you know like not everybody is always reading or like always doing like nerdy black stuff like that but <laughs> those are the people that i like
1: <laughs> let's talk a little bit about making a living i mean i think that's the hardest thing people have right now the problem people have right now is like writing online doesn't pay very well if you're in a freelance situation yeah and so you can never get the time to like do the kind of piece that you want to do whatever genre it happens to be in mm-hmm. how do you feel like you have able to been able to sort of make that space for right now
0: i think i i had to prove myself and what that means is when i knew i wasn't good enough to make a full time living off freelancing i was living at my parents eating every meal there and that's what it was, that it was a trade-off that I was making in terms of wanting to get better at this skill and wanting to get better at this craft. It meant that I couldn't depend on all of my income coming from it because I just didn't deserve it yet. And obviously, in a perfect world, if you were somebody who shows up to write, you should be able to make more than enough to live on. But that's not what our industry is like right now. And so I think it's so important if you feel like you're in a rut to make your money elsewhere, to make your money in some... uh, Writing can't be the only thing that you're good at. If it is, you need to figure out something else to be good at because it's not good for your brain, let alone your actual um, ability to live. But I never actually thought that I was going to be able to make... that I was going to have a full-time job in media Mm. because it just seemed like that wasn't available. Um, But what ended up happening was... I got better, and I earned the job that I have.
1: Did you have resistance from your family about pursuing a not a sort of uh, possibly less practical? It was very profession. It was
0: very passive resistance. <laughs> um, the other thing is that. I was able to get a job so quickly, and I started doing well so quickly that there wasn't much time for my parents to kick me out. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's,
1: <laughs> if it was like five years, yeah, going on 10 Yeah, it might years, have been a
0: little bit different.
1: Writing my novel kind of thing.
0: <laughs> but I was always, I was a really, really, really shy introverted kid who wrote all the time and read all the time. And I think my parents always knew that there was no way that I wasn't going to try to pursue it, whether or not that would be a full-time pursuit dependent on a lot of things. So they really wanted me to go to grad school for a while. But I was able to kind of convince them that I'd actually be worse off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, one thing you said in there is something I feel like people uh, rarely say because it it's like uncomfortable to say it, but like you're good at it. You like you earned it. You didn't say you're good at it, but like you earned yeah. g- this job and you're good at it. Like that's a big part of like starting, I'm sure you weren't as good at, it at the beginning as you are even now, but like working to get better at it is a critical component of that.
0: Yeah. I'm very self-aware. So I know exactly how good I am. And I also know how much better I can get, which means certain opportunities, if they're proposed to me, I'm not going to take them because I know I'm not good enough for them yet.
1: Hmm. Have you turned down the opportunities thinking like, I'm not ready to do that?
0: Yeah, I've definitely done that. I don't think that it's really hard when you're like a young 20 something and you're like a little precocious and everybody wants you to be on their project. Yeah. But you can get burned. I think it's so important. Some Apprenticeship is something that I've always really desired. And I've always wanted to be working under somebody who was better than me. And, hopefully eventually to surpass that person, you know, over a number of years. I have a really arcane idea of how one becomes a good writer in that sense.
1: You mentioned being a shy kid, and I noticed in the most recent profile, which is just about to come out, yeah. um, of the gospel singer whose name escapes me. Kirk Franklin. Kirk Franklin. You, you know, you're riding along with him. He's out on tour, and you've got some other reported pieces. You have done some, did a reported piece for The New Yorker where you went along on a rat it's hard to read if you have got rats in New York.
0: <laughs> and can you believe I pitched that piece? Oh you did? I was like, Can I go to rat school? And they let me. <laughs> How did you know
1: about rat school?
0: Um, I have a rat alert because of the pizza rat thing. Oh. So it was like, it was timely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I didn't, looking back and reading, I didn't realize it was, it was it had a newspeg. Yes,
0: yes, there was a newspeg around it. And so after Pizza Rat happened, I was like, oh my God, rats are like a thing. Here's an opportunity for me to do like adjacent science writing. And then I found out about rat school.
1: Yeah. Well, did, uh, how does reporting come, come to you? Like, how does it feel to you to go out and do that type of reporting or this kind of profile reporting that you're you've just done?
0: It's really hard for me. In a lot of ways, I have transcended my shyness and have become a more extroverted person. But in certain situations, I just really, like, mouse up and get really nervous. Um, And I've been lucky in both of those instances to have more than just an hour with the subject, right? When you only have an hour, like, you you just can't mess it up. You need to get every question out, and you need to be able to get, like, follow-up questions. Like, you really have to milk your time. And that's not something that I think that I'm that great at yet. Hopefully, I'll get better. But everything, like, for instance, when I was with Kirk Franklin, I was with him for basically two and a half days. Mm-hmm. And we crossed state lines, and I was on the tour bus with him.
1: Went to Whole Foods.
0: We went to Whole Foods. <laughs> We were in the deep south and I would catch myself kind of receding into a seat and not really asking him questions and just, you know, being something that wasn't a a reporter. And then I'd have to kind of just like get really uncomfortable and push myself to ask him questions that maybe weren't even – related to music. You know, if you have that much time with a subject, it's your duty to ask every single question that you can, you know, ask questions about where they live, ask questions about like what they like to eat, ask questions about like what they like to wear, because you never know what extraneous detail is really going to give you, you know, your kicker or really going to give you an insight into the way they make their music and just the kind of person that they are. So... I think I have a lot of work to do in terms of getting over my shyness in those situations. But sometimes you just, you have so many questions anyway that you don't even have to worry. Like with the rat thing, it was like, I (laughs) was so confused and I needed to be enlightened so much that I was asking questions. Like I was asking too many questions at one point and they were like, okay, like here's a pamphlet that you can read it. But...
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and hear a lot of rats. Yeah. Um yeah, that pro I mean the profile reporting that's very that's hard for me when I've done it because yeah. you do hit a point where you sort of you've been going for two hours with someone and you're just like, I know I have more questions, but I just don't have them right now and I don't want to waste this time, but I actually don't want to talk to you anymore.
0: Exactly. When and then it's like, Well, I don't really matter in this situation, obviously. Like my humanity should not trump whatever question. I should be asking this person. (laughs) It doesn't matter if you're tired. (laughs) Yeah, but you're
1: also not like superhuman in terms of like conversation. At least like I can't, sometimes I just can't keep it up and I just need to like get away from that person (laughs) for for a little while. But that, uh, he was an interesting figure because he's a sort of adjacent to huge pop cultural figures. He's obviously like had a whole career of his own and Mm -hmm. he's very big in the gospel world. Um, But it made me, wonder if you have had opportunities or are interested in, you know, doing profiles of the people that you also write criticism about and sort of like what, how you navigate that world. Because there's the whole sort of like access, there's the like, you know, cover story for whatever, GQ or MTV probably does a similar stuff. How do you feel about that world?
0: Very ambivalent. I was actually having a conversation with some colleagues about that today. We were talking about The skills that you need to be a good interviewer versus the skills that you need to be a good critic and how sometimes those two can butt against each other, which is to say, as a critic, I already know what your album is about because I formulated an opinion on it and I actually don't want to hear what you have to say about your album because you don't really matter in the space of criticism. The author is dead or whatever. But when you're reporting, they're so not dead. They're like... (laughs) They're alive and they're contradicting you and they're hypocritical and they're doing all of these things. Um, and with Kirk Franklin, it was very interesting because I, obviously I had pitched him as somebody who was adjacent to Kanye West, right? And so in some ways, a lot of what Kirk Franklin says is once removed applicable to Kanye. And so that kind of um, ride around to me is interesting. Mm-hmm. But um, he, because I didn't have preconceived notions about gospel music, really, that's not something that I normally write about. It was so much easier for me to kind of just see him as he was. Whereas if I was profiling an artist that I write frequent criticism about, I'd probably be really disappointed.
1: (laughs) Or I wonder, I mean, I'm not saying this would happen in this circumstance, but like, you know, your piece about the Solange album, it starts in a kind of different place like it starts mm-hmm. at her mother's hair salon and kind of like follows a thread to the music and there's always the possibility that if you talk to her she'd say no no it actually has nothing to do with that or like that's not the right source of and course. like how do you navigate your own you've layered your own views on top of this music versus yeah. what she may or may not have intended
0: you know and some and layering your own view on top of something constitutes now it's a whole other thing right it's like the criticism Mm -hmm. it's not just a response to the album it's an essay that lives on its own that somebody would read without maybe even listening to the music so yeah for right now I can't people that I write really heady criticism about I think I would never want to meet it seems like it would deflate a lot of what I think is good about my writing.
1: The other thing I want to ask you about that pops up a few times and I wasn't sure how you thought about it was I've seen you described as like writer plus activist. Like that comes up in different places and I couldn't tell if that was because like two years ago when you were in college you like organized a protest and so people just say, oh, activist. Or like the earliest, one of the earliest pieces I found was like a Guardian piece which was something Mm -hmm. you wrote about like Ray Kelly coming to Brown and sort of responding to that. And is that something like are you is that a label uh, that you would embrace like activists or is that something people are just putting on t- to you because you write about certain things?
0: It's so crazy like if any other person did something three or four times when they were 19 years old that would not become an identity that would be affixed to them yeah. you know 5 well, years later. And thank
1: God. <laughs> thank because God because most of the people things people do when they're 19 years old are are stupid. <laughs>
0: Um. yeah, I really struggle with being called an activist because as somebody who is friends with activists and sees what they have to do, I know that I'm not that. And it's not something that I would ever want to be considering that I have decided I want to be a writer. To me, obviously, there are some people who call themselves writer slash activists or do both, and that's totally fine for them. But for me, there really is just kind of like church and state between those two worlds. Um, And I don't know how to sometimes speak up for myself to sort of say, hey, I've never given you any indication that that's what I do. And in some ways it feels like it's a um, signal that I'm not, actually a writer, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It's I like, think
1: it can be... I don't know that the places I saw it, they intended it this way, but I think I think it can be pejorative yeah. for, from a world of journalism and writing that, oh, absolutely. oh, that's just an activist.
0: Yeah, you know, like, she's just, like, full of opinion and bluster, which that's not what activists are, but when you are pairing somebody in that way, obviously, I think that's what you're insinuating, and I find it offensive because I... I talk about this all the time with um, my friend Durga Trupos but I think of myself as a stylist. You know, I think of myself as somebody who's so obsessed with making writing beautiful that like morals are not even on my mind. You know, like I would rather have a beautiful, like an aesthetically beautiful essay than one that maybe made like an argument. <laughs> so it's always difficult when people see you as one thing, when you know that, A, you're not, but also B, you've never projected that kind of identity on yourself or to other people.
1: You would hope that over time, that would fade away.
0: Hopefully. People would not continue
1: to to use that particular label.
0: But I mean, even a couple of months ago, I got an email from a friend that I went to school with, and they were like, oh, you're on the alumni page. And the way that they described me was writer slash socially conscious alumna. And it was like, that's not even a real job. Like, no, you can't say somebody's as a socially conscious. Like, that's not an occupation. It was really.
1: <laughs> or at the very least, it makes a sort of terrible statement about the rest of the alumni. Exactly. Like, it's like, oh, because. The I assumption s- is you're not socially conscious. If you are, it's so important that we're going to put it in your. Right. In like, because I sent
0: like 10 tweets about how it's bad to kill a black person <laughs> in the middle of the street. Like, that's not. It just seems like the bar is really low. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that actually but that, that leads me to something else I want to ask you about, which I, I think I've seen you talk about a little bit, which is this um, you know, phenomenon I think for writers of color that when something happens, they get called mm-hmm. to to write about it. And it seems like it's sort of in some ways like a complicated thing because like it makes sense that some like white editor like myself is saying, Oh, we need someone who who could write to this in a in an intelligent way and it's probably not me or maybe it's not me. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, there's something off about it too. Uh, and I'm interested in you. You probably get those calls or those emails. Oh, yeah. And how do you uh, sort of, what's your, how do you respond to that?
0: It depends on the day. Yeah. Now that I'm on staff, it's not something that I readily experience. But before, it would happen a lot. Um, and... Sometimes you get a request from an editor where it's clear that they know that you write about a sub-phenomena of blackness, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody's emailing you to write about, I don't know, Beyonce's like fashion, clearly they know that you are interested in pop music and you're interested in artists and celebrity. And so it's not absolutely out of the blue. But sometimes you just get something that is like, I've never written anything like even close to this thing that you're pitching to me. And it makes you feel – it's like the activist thing. You feel just pigeonholed and like you are a two-dimensional slot that somebody just like picks when they need to fill some – plug a hole or plug a leak. Right. Um, So I – went through a period where I would just say no to a lot of editors, even if I secretly wanted to write the piece, but to make a point.
1: Uh
0: Um, Because first of all, I think that the relationship should be way more reciprocal than that. We should always be in conversation with each other. And if I, if happen upon something that I should write about, I should be able to feel like I'm already talking to you and... I can go for it. So it shouldn't just be like that extractive kind of relationship where you like keep pinging me about some like black devastation.
1: Yeah. And yeah, yeah.
0: that you want me to write about. But at the same time, you read a piece about, I don't know, even today I read a piece about Blue Ivy and Northwest and the picture that they chose of Northwest showed her, like, really happy and, happy and smiling, and the picture of Blue Ivy showed her with a scowl on her face. And there's been, like, a lot of writing about how Blue Ivy at age four has already been loaded on with the angry Black woman narrative. And so I read that, and it's like, well, if a Black person, you know, was writing this piece or choosing this art, then this wouldn't be a problem. But at the same time, the limit or the horizon for Black writing and Black... Artistry shouldn't be that we are just preventing these little small fires that happen on the internet, mm-hmm. you know. And sometimes it feels like editors aren't contacting you to actually cultivate you as a writer, and they're more interested in dousing, yeah, and dousing that fire.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you said no to them, did you say no with with an explanation? No, no. just just no, no. yeah.
0: Um, because I don't think that you should feel that you have to splay so much of yourself like that because yeah. at the end of the day it is really unprofessional you know and it's not something that every kind of writer experiences and i want to hold myself to the standard that i know like white women writers have at their jobs and also when they're freelancing and i think that's like really fair yeah <laughs> um, it, there's not a clear answer because if the day is right and you really do have that essay in you then, yeah, you are the right person to contact. But if it isn't the right day, then it's probably going to ruin. Sometimes I, I would feel so stereotyped and so misunderstood that I wouldn't be able to write for a little bit, mm. you know, because you think of yourself as a critic, somebody who makes these analyses that are important and read, and then somebody just wants you to, you know, produce something that feels like fast food in a lot of ways. Um. Yeah, it's shitty. It's very shitty, but I I've developed Teflon to it now.
1: How do you how did how did you how are you able to do that?
0: I think, I mean, just having certain bylines lets people know that I'm not the one. Yeah, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm not here for that.
0: <laughs> you know, but then also at the same time, I know myself and other writers who were still babies. But we, whenever we see somebody who's like a few years younger, like getting caught up, it's like really important to me to reach out and be like, "Hey, like you don't actually have to do this, you know? You can develop your craft in the direction you had perceived." Um, so it feels because you know if I say no to something, that means that they're emailing the the person yeah. that they were thinking about yeah, after yeah. me, um, and it's important for there to be conversation and for people to be looking out for each other. And
1: do you feel like you're a part of a community of writers Definitely. who are sort of, are they, are they do they span career or are they mostly for like sure. younger writers?
0: No, I mean, a lot of the writers I feel very close to intellectually, but also friendship wise are 10 years older than me. But there's something that I think is bigger than time. There are connections that feel a lot more transient. And they have been really helpful to me because they have sort of, like, shown me that I'm not just a fanciful 24-year-old, that actually I can have these standards into my 30s and that they will actually reap benefits for me and that they will be rewarding. So...
1: Well, that's good. I mean, it's good to know that writers are doing that, I think, because... it's
0: definitely happening.
1: It feels like that's that's something that editors are supposed to do or used to do or that's part of a great editor's job and there's still many great editors out there, but just like the way the industry is now. And what do you, what do you see for like your ideal? Do you have some kind of vision? I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, the way that I think of myself as a writer, obviously I'm mostly doing essays right now because that's just where I am, but I don't at all feel that I couldn't be good at other forms of writing. You know, I love TV. I'm obsessed with TV. That's something that I write about and watch a lot. And, you know, I worked with Steve McQueen on that show. I've been able to interview black female showrunners that I really admire. And I think it would be a really fun challenge to figure out, okay, I can do really deep analytical essay writing. And I do have ideas about what images I'd like to see in the world. How can I marry those two things and, you know, maybe write a script? Um, so I think I have a few more years of just being able to only write on the Internet. But <laughs> I definitely don't um, only want to do that. I want to do a lot of other things. Yeah.
1: You also have a podcast, MTV Podcast. I do have a podcast. With Ira Madison. Mm-hmm. he's very funny he's a funny oh Iron
0: Madison I, excuse me Iron Madison the uh, third do you have to say the third? <laughs> you do have to say okay. the third he is a trip he's my total opposite in terms of <laughs> how we write how we talk how we do a lot of things but we have a lot of intimacy and kind of mystery with each other did you know him before no. the
1: podcast or did they, did someone else like make that happen like you guys should have Iron made it happen other. oh really <laughs>
0: we had we had a very loose relationship on Twitter. Um, And then when he found out that I was going to go to MTV, he messaged me and was like, we need to do a podcast. And I had never thought about doing a talk-based podcast because, like I said, I'm a little bit of a shy person. But it has been a way for me to create this third identity. You know, there's Doreen the Critic, Doreen the Tweeter, and then Doreen. The host of this podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does it, has
1: it like opened up an idea that, oh, maybe I do have this personality that could be like, maybe I should maybe be on TV or like be out in front in that way?
0: Yeah. I, I'm i always wrestling between wanting to be, you know, like an ascetic, like very Catholic kind of critic who doesn't dabble in anything that isn't criticism but I think those lines are dissolving and melting and they're not really going to be relevant for that much longer. So it can't hurt to host an MTV Facebook Live or two months ago, myself and my producer at The Stakes, which is another MTV podcast, mm-hmm. we um, got in contact with incarcerated people and we I interviewed them via contraband cell phones and we made a podcast out of it and I think I am really, really hopeful for the ways that we can look at a story, try to understand it, and then place it in its correct medium. You know, like any—Ira and I could do a roundtable, you know, a written roundtable every week, and that could be the version of Speed Dial, but it makes more sense to hear us talking. So yeah, I like, who knows? Maybe I'm going to have like a talk show one day. Maybe I'm going to be a showrunner. (laughs) Who fucking knows?
1: (laughs) Well, thanks for coming on the podcast.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is really fun.
1: And that's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Jareen for coming in this week. Thanks to my co hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Thanks as always to our sponsors, Texture, Harry's, Hello Fresh, and of course, MailChimp. And thanks to Mickey Capper, who edited this week's episode, and Courtney Harrell, who's our intern. We will see you next week.
2: Why do you run?